and good morning. Welcome to The Old School, a podcast about the American education system. It's quirks, it's idiosyncrasies, it's peccadillos, it's problems, solutions, possible solutions, and so far as we know, the solutions. Good morning here, Dr. Bourgeois. Here, Miller. Good morning. Um, good to see you this morning. Good to see you. And we are graced by the presence of Mr. Wes Upton, uh, counselor extraordinaire, uh, Keller High School in North Texas. And also previously, he walked the halls of middle and high schools as a science teacher. So he comes to us from the from the STEM world, as it were, and so has a share a lot of experience and ideas and thoughts regarding that. But uh, good morning, Mr. Upton. Yeah, good morning, gentlemen. Thanks for thanks for having me on. Excited to be here. Excited to have you here. So, but before we get going on the topic, I'm curious, um, Steve. We we talked about holidays previous. But we never talked about this one particular element, and that is the dress-up days. Have you ever participated in a holiday dress-up day? You're talking about wearing a costume? Oh, wearing a costume or ugly Christmas sweater, maybe some antlers on your head or anything of that ilk. No, I haven't, and you haven't either. I don't know why you're trying to goad me, but no, I haven't done that. I would never do such a thing. Wes, have you ever participated in such shenanigans? Well, you know, you introduced me as a school counselor. And so I think it's in many ways expected that I will play along with some of these things. So um, I, I, in fact, have and likely will continue to do so on many of those. Uh, however, uh, this week, for example, we had flannel day uh, as our Friday on our campus where it was 80 degrees in December. Um, so that was a nice one. But uh, additionally, we had a counselor training that day, which was pajama day. And I have yet to participate in a pajama day because that's that's a little beyond my comfort zone. So there is a line. That's what you're saying. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Steve's line just starts from the beginning and we kind of goes from there. Now, yeah. I will participate in flannel. I, I, I sport flannel on a regular basis, certainly during, not during 80 degree days. But uh, but um, I'm just it's curious because. My standard joke is, is that I have very little dignity as it is any longer. And so there's no reason to give up what little I have left. <laughs> you see people walking around with, with like L shoes with bells on, on the toe or what have you. And I just, <laughs> Steve, you have any thoughts on uh, teachers who dress up uh, as elves with bells and everything? Um, I, I think maybe you'd have to be really young and, and they, they, they kind of gave you the wrong information ahead of time when you just <laughs> show up there. But I've, I, I have worn a flannel shirt or two and I always regret it because it's much warmer than you think it is. You know, and then you're, you're stuck all day sweating. See, you're from Oregon. I thought everyone wore flannel in Oregon. It's like, a, you know, it's like, the, it's like the stereotypical image of an Oregonian. Is that the right word? Uh, Oregonian or image? Uh, <laughs> Oregonian. Uh, I don't know. So, so um, Ross, why don't you take us into our, our, our topic? Because I kind of shut this down. I don't, you know, we, we discussed um, Christmas, but maybe I, I'm interested, you know, in the counselor's perspective of, of this time of year, because there's a lot going on in your world, Wes, I'm sure, as we approach the end of the first semester. But definitely, yeah, and and I'm not sure uh, there, there's a lot to a lot to process in terms of, of wrapping up an academic term, 
um, and and the and and Ross, you can probably speak to this too, being in the front lines as a teacher of all the the pleas and and bargaining that occurs at this time of year uh, to get things racked up by students and and a lot of facilitating of that. I think that we do in our world to to help get kids in a place where they can they can finish up as to the best of their ability, despite whatever may have happened uh, historically. Um, and yeah, and just going into the holidays is, is a lot of uh, unknown for a lot of people because school. Uh, which I think we all know is is a place where there's a lot of stability and structure and that sort of thing for students that that helps maintain a a quality a certain expected quality of life and I think uh, our students uh, miss that when they go on break for many of them so that's a very interesting transition for them would be so so maybe give us an idea of, of where you spend like seventy five percent of your time at work yeah. Um, well, and, and, and my role is a little different. I'm a, I, I don't have a student caseload in, in my current role. Um, so I, I work to facilitate the counseling office, but I think I'll speak less about what my job entails and more about what the, the average high school yeah. counseling job entails, because I think that's more applicable to this conversation. But um, right now, what, what our counselors are spending a good chunk of their time with is, uh, is, is working on beginning some planning for what's going to happen after high school. And we're, we're meeting individually with an entire uh, class of students over the course of the last month. We've been working towards that calling down students and having 15 to 30 minute meetings with every student looking at uh, specifically identifying what they need to finish high school. We're working with juniors right now and, and what do they need for their senior year and, and marking that down and, and essentially picking their classes for the next and last year of high school and then spending a, a larger chunk of that time identifying what their goals are after high school and how we can help them get there curious because one of the things that of course you and the other counselors have to balance is you know the state of the student you know what their abilities are and what they're not and also trying to balance you know uh, a good course a good course load but then also making sure that they're not overdoing it or they're not overburdening themselves how do you make those decisions when you're having these individual conversations with students yeah i think the 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 key to that is it, it's a very responsive meeting and it, and it requires a lot of, of attention to both the will and desire of the student and recognizing some of the whatever data points we may have to help discuss with the student. Um, in, in our current situation at our school, everything is, is essentially open enrollment, meaning a student can, can choose any level of course for any number of courses in which they want to take. Uh, meaning they can take courses at AP or dual credit or what we deem the regular class. Um, students can can choose those, and and it's really up to student choice. But but the influence that we may have there is is recognizing the number of extracurricular uh, involvements that a student may be engaged in, or uh, in addition to that, finding. Uh, historical data of saying, okay, you historically have done very well in these subjects, this makes a lot of sense, or you have historically struggled. And, and remember the conversation we had just last month, is this for sure the decision that you want to make? And, and ultimately, in our world, we, we very rarely tell someone exactly what it is that they are to do, but rather provide evidence for them to make a, a sound decision. Well, um, talking about scheduling, I mean, we spent um, about 30 minutes last week talking about advanced courses and you know you're at a a, a high school that that you know has, has a lot of competition for those um, spots how much of, of of that conversation do you have i know you talk to all students but but how much is is college on their minds 
Yeah, I mean, again, I think you recognize that our our school has a very consistent college going culture. And so uh, for our students, while we do certainly navigate the the merits and the value for students of military uh, or or trade schools or or other post high school training programs, the majority of our students are interested and and focused on a collegiate experience after high school. And so um, that's the majority of our students and what we're speaking to them about in terms of what they're preparing for. And uh, to that point, what we find is, is the majority of our students at, at our high school are, are in some way preparing for college, meaning they're taking courses that are rigorous enough at the, co- at the high school level to have some college uh, enrollment at, at some point. So we, we see a large number of our students taking AP or dual credit classes um, and in one or more areas, and, and many of them, you know, at the at the upper echelon of our students, if you will, in their academic abilities, you'll find those students taking as many um, as many or more classes than a typical high school freshman. I mean, excuse me, college freshman would take, um, which is fascinating to me in many ways. When you see a student enroll in six or seven AP level courses, plus they have a full academic day of of eight thirty until four o'clock, plus an extracurricular activity that takes two hours a day, um, I'm I'm quite intrigued by the student that balances that type of, of workload. Where do you think the, the motivation comes from? Or what do you think spurs the desire? Because one of the things we kind of struggle with, at least I do as a teacher, because I teach advanced placement as well as other things also. But I wonder, um, you know, what is the driving force behind this approach towards college? How does it affect how you counsel people? Uh, towards, you know, whatever schedule they end up doing? How do you kind of juggle the motivations that go into this? Yeah, so the I think there's a, a few different angles to look at this. And um, each one of those has a has a different lens that you put on it to, to support that situation. So we have we have certain students that then and I'm thinking about like a, a top 10 student out of out of a class of 800. Many of those students are geared in a way where they feel like they're motivated a by truly the the content and the knowledge they're they're just thirsty to learn more um, and they really have a, a keen sense of the the academic uh, growth as being part of their motivation and layer on top of that they're striving to be number one or number two or number seven um, and so that rank is a, is affiliated with taking as many of those rigorous classes that may be weighted in some way um, and so those students, you, you find that their motivation is to fill their plate as complete as possible, as completely as possible in order to, to optimize outcomes in terms of a, a race to the top, if you will. Um, although again, many of those students are also highly motivated to learn. So I, I, I think those, there's, a, there's a real interesting dynamic there where I think sometimes we, we suggest that those students are solely fighting for a number and trying to be number two or number one or, or have the highest GPA. And, and there's some of that in there without question. Um, but fortunately, many of them are also very curious and, and seek to learn uh, for the sake of learning. Um, and, and, and I do think that there are students that truly do chase that number. Um, and so I think that that goes into the, uh, the process of advising and working with those students. Um, some, some of the families are, are very motivated from the top down, if you will, as opposed to the, to the student being the driver of those discussions. And, and again, that can come for a, a number of different reasons where you may have a, 
a family that's that finds it incredibly valuable to seek as many college credits as possible from a from a primarily monetary uh, focus. Uh, meaning, you know, I can have a student jump into to college with uh, with essentially a, a year of college or more taken care of before they they even step foot on the on the campus. Um, and and there's a certain uh, from that top down perspective, there's a certain sense of pride and a certain um, I, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure what to call it, um, but but keeping up with the Joneses uh, or or staying ahead of the Joneses perhaps is a better way to put it. I was thinking about how long you've been a counselor. You've been a counselor for 12 years. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. And so between the counseling time and the teaching time, you've had the ability to kind of see what the student looked like prior to this kind of hyper focus on college and AP courses till position you are in now. You know, we talked last week and you had mentioned that you had listened to the podcast. We talked about what this does to students and how does it affect them. And we kind of focused on, some of the negative aspects of it, but certainly there has to be some positive ramifications to this. I'm wondering from your position, what do you see as like some of the major, you know, pratfalls, potential pratfalls to this kind of focus, as opposed to what might serve as a kind of a benefit to what these kids are going through? Sure. Yeah. I think, um, you know, and I'm a, and I'm a parent of a recent high school graduate as well. And so I'm going to use some of that as my lens, mm-hmm. uh, and and so, for example, my my own biological child is is very STEM focused specifically, and and uh, no offense, my he's he's not as interested in the humanities. Um, so uh, he he uh, he took those classes because they were part of a, a required degree plan. But but had they not been, likely not would not have been part of his course of study. Um, and so I, I find that. Um, some of the benefits of this can be certainly is, is essentially providing a sense of, of well-roundedness and a sense of perspective that otherwise may not be built if you're, if you're only focusing in on your uh, primary areas of interest and, and doing it at a level that is rigorous and challenging and engaging, I think was something that, that was very meaningful. Um, again, whereas if, if left to their own devices in my own instance, it, it may not have been something that they would have taken. Um, it, it was definitely something that was that was enriching and, and valuable in, in that experience. But I can also say it from that from that same perspective, uh, given the opportunity for my own biological child to take dual credit over the summer for an English class as opposed to taking it in the AP setting, um, very quick to sign up for that to to get the credit, potentially get the college credit, and and move through that subject to focus more on the areas of of interest. Um, as far as some of the benefits that I think are really valuable moving on just for the, for the experience in and of itself. I mean, we, I, I often hope and, and maybe naively hope that, that we all step into something in, with a willingness to learn because we just want the learning to be the outcome that is most important. Um, and, and I do think that, that many students, whether they know that or not, do walk away with that experience. Um, and what I find in terms of a, you know, a, a research proven thing is the students that will be enrolled in rigorous classes in high school are very likely to be successful, much more likely to be successful in college and much more likely to complete college if they've had some exposure to that type of, of experience in high school. So students that take at least a dual credit class or an AP level class are, are statistically significantly higher uh, college completers than those who do not um, in the high school setting. 
So I think that's the that's the biggest draw when I look at it from a from an enrollment perspective is obviously I hope that they're taking away some some great learning from that experience. And I also hope that they are positioning themselves to to know what uh, college level rigor and expectations are. So when they walk out, they're not surprised by it. So, so as you mentioned, STEM and, and Ross and I talk a lot about STEM um we have in in the state of texas uh, and you can maybe explain this better than i could but the the pathways that that students are really selecting in eighth grade for their high school experience so they're in that process now um and stem is one of the options among others um and you were there probably for the transition to that uh initiative um what are your reactions to it how's it working yeah, so for and hopefully your your listenership is so broad that I'll explain it across the globe for those that are not Texas <laughs> listeners. That it's just us actually here. Yeah. Nobody else is out there. We're we're it's all smoke and mirrors. Voice into the wilderness. That's right. <laughs> um, so as you say, the uh, the the plan in Texas that came about several years ago is is a plan that in fact does require students to make. Uh, a four-year plan that completes high school with uh, what we call an endorsement, which is essentially very similar to choosing a major in college. And so we ask our 13-year-olds to decide what they want to be when they grow up and, and write it down and and put it in a put it in a file, basically. Uh, and so that is something that that we work with all of our eighth graders on, and that and the intent is to have students be very mindful and thoughtful in. Uh, considering what it is that they want to do through all of high school and ensuring that they understand that high school is not just a four-year experience, but rather a connection to life after high school. And, and I find that that is, in fact, quite helpful. And, and you're right, I was part of this exchange and I was a middle school counselor at that time. So it was a great time to be a middle school counselor because we were the ones deploying this to families um, and, and students and families, as you might imagine, are very stressed to say, you're asking my 12, 13, 14 year old to make a lifelong decision. And, and there's a lot of, of consternation that goes along with that and a lot of concern of oh, what if we make the wrong choice? Um, and, and that's very understandable. But what, what I have found in my experience with this is making a choice in and of itself, because it is not written in stone, is in fact helpful to have very uh, thoughtful decisions being made, to have conversations around the dinner table, to have students thinking about what it is that they want to do when they grow up and, and how it is that they'll go about getting there. Um, and so there, there's massive value added, I feel like, in the in the educational experience by spending time processing that at a middle age so that as they learn and, and learning can very well be in this process, not not falling in love with a profession or a trade or a, or a topic, but rather understanding I don't love that and moving forward at a time when it's still in a public school setting, taxpayer funded and, and you just change your mind and it's OK. So as a, an old uh, electives teacher teaching um, foreign language and, and, and music, um, I actually just helped uh, one of my kids complete that, that form. And, and so I, it's kind of on, on my mind. It seemed to prioritize, I think in a good way, electives, because they're looking a little bit more carefully at these and strategically. Uh, has it had a beneficial or a positive effect on, on the elective programs? I feel like in, in most areas it has, and, and I think what it's done for, for a number of schools is improving and increasing the cohesiveness of, of programs rather than just saying, I'm going to pick from a menu wildly. 
and and not have any nice pairing of of a of a wine with your with your entree, right? For example, uh, so so it's essentially allows students to have a a intentional connection amongst the things that they take, as opposed to just every year willy nilly picking whatever comes to mind or whatever my friend's taking and things like that. Which I know it's hard to believe, but oftentimes teenagers will pick things based on peer influence. Really. Um, <laughs> Well, Ross, what, what what do you think? You have a, a, a child who's interested in, in languages right now and yeah. history. I think I think the thing I worry about always, and what we have brought up here before, is that sometimes, at least from the student point of view, if not in reality, the, the pathways seem intractable. It seems like you know they're kind of they're stuck in it, you know, they have to ride it out. And you know, the the idea that high school was initially thought of to be a, a place of exploration, whereas now it seems to be a place of specialization. And maybe that's just a natural evolutionary change in, as far as high school goes. And maybe it's not necessary for it to go back to how it was originally conceived. But at the same time, I do, you know, one, you, I, I sometimes worry that humanities takes it in the shorts because it doesn't have occupations that's associated with high salaries. And we don't have a cool acronym <laughs> to, to go along with it. But I think at the same time, I just I kind of worry about um, uh, what the expectations are and how it affects how students approach their studies, where this is more about what I can get out of this in the form of a job and an income later on, as opposed to, you know, approaching the subject as Wes, you were talking about, you know, that, that curiosity being a, a natural lubricant towards taking various courses for its own sake. Gosh, I wish I'd said anything as as nicely as you just stated it. I, those words never came through my mouth, but that's awesome. <laughs> did you just say lubricant? What else did you just say? Like you, you drop oh, no. <laughs> I'm just riffing here. So. <laughs> um, well, that that um, what you just said, you, you kind of took a a stab at um, you know what might be challenging about you know giving somebody a 13 year old some some choices and maybe we should just ask you know wes you know how how likely is somebody to, to shift programs say after the ninth grade or even maybe when they have some skin in the game say after the 10th grade more often than than we would have thought i think initially when when beginning this program i think the i think the theoretical uh, framework was you pick something in eighth grade and you roll with it until graduation and you put your stamp on it for whatever your chosen endorsement would be. Um, and, and I would make up numbers right now, but I won't do it out of, out of respect to my profession <laughs> as to what that number is. Um, but, but students change their mind at a, at a pretty considerable rate. And, and to the point of, for example, the humanities maybe suffering for not having the, the best acronym yet um, is one of the, the great points I feel like in, in our current school setting is that that you have the ability to do a multitude of things. And so um, it is very common for our students to have um, a, a focus in the humanities, for example, taking a fourth or fifth foreign language uh, in addition to being involved in an, in an engineering program or being involved in, in a culinary program or, or a business program. And so having the ability to do to do a multitude of things is is more common than not amongst our students. And so I think that that makes me happy as a, as a counselor to know that our students are not uh, essentially pigeonholed into one selection, but rather have the capacity to do, to do multiple things. 
Well, let me give you an example of scheduling since we're called the old old school way back when, you know, when, when I was in high school, uh, we had a, a standard graduation plan, um, but they also had, had a, a, and a diff- different one. It was actually called plan three. So not just two, but three where <laughs> you had complete control of, of what you wanted. So imagine turn loose with this. I mean, I was a musician, a pianist. I was in string orchestra. So I had like four music classes. I mean, all throughout my, I had um, string orchestra, I had choir, where I was an accompanist, I had a ensemble, uh, and then I also had an hour of practicing. And so that was basically half of the school day. And then I had German, which I took for, for the, actually it was three years back then, and then sprinkled in some, some core subjects. So that, that's kind of an extreme, extreme case. I mean, right now, you're, the elective possibility is relatively small compared to that. I, I agree that the uh, reflowing nature of what you just described is yeah. not something that exists in the current construct at all. <laughs> yeah, it, it was kind of blown away long ago with, with the state testing. And I mean, when we had that four by four kind of dropped in, you know, the flexibility is is relatively a small portion of that overall schedule right now. Well, and I was I was reflecting as well, if we're, it, we'll, we'll go back to my old school mm-hmm. memories as well as being a, an early science teacher and and. Uh, in my first year or two of teaching, and, and we certainly had uh, state standards and things that we were that we were uh, working towards teaching. But uh, I, I wrote a proposal in my first couple of years of teaching to, to teach a group of students, and I and I pre-tested students, and if they demonstrated mastery, I gave them the ability to go during that unit instructional time to do individual research projects in science. And I happen to have a park near the school that I worked in, and, and I sent students out to do any number of things, surveying and identifying trees and, and looking at the at the underwater topography of a pond and doing things like that that were completely uh, unique to their experience because we were geographically where we were. Um, but all I all I essentially did was have them pretest, and if they already knew what we were supposed to teach for the next month, then why sit them through the class period for that two weeks of learning and allow them to do something different? And I reflect on that now and just think that I had students roaming about in a city park. Um, <laughs> walkie talkies, that was my level of supervision um, with GPS walkie talkies. And, and that's how I was keeping tabs on kids. And I just think, how did I ever get away with this? <laughs> it, it was a better era, it sounds like. I mean, because we are putting kids in a classroom, like you, you said, kind of sit it out, even though they're maybe not being challenged. Um, so I think Ross, I speak for Ross and myself that we 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 do like the idea of a pretest. Um, I think that's that's brilliant. Not just that, but it, it's not just it is not just the the allowance of a flexibility on the part of the student, but it's also an allowance of flexibility on the part of the teacher to be able to say, you know, as the as the as the expert in the rooms to say, okay, these group of kids they got this, they already understand this. Let's do something different with them. And I I think there would be a lot more resistance, I believe, if nothing, if for no other reason, but to send them to various city parks. But I mean, I think, I think there'd be a little bit more pushback. Without a doubt. Like I said, there's, there's just reflection on that. I'm wondering how no one got injured and, and how I still <laughs> maintain it. So, you know, but, it but it worked out and I'm sure it was a very memorable experience for those students. I wonder from the counseling point of view, what do you do with a student like me? Because unlike our very driven uh, friend here, Steve, um, who's taking God knows what. Um, I, I don't really recall my high school years. I, I certainly don't recall ever talking to a counselor about 
what I was supposed to do. If there, if there was a conversation, it probably was like a two minute conversation to say here, Ross, this is what you're going to do. They weren't worried about college prep classes because no one thought I was going to college. So they just said, here, kid, do this. And then off you go. Um, when you have a kid who is a, a low performer, um, who may be bright, I may be bright, uh, who, who may be smart enough to maybe take on harder things, but doesn't seem to have the drive to do so. From a counseling point of view, how do you tackle that type of student? Yeah, that's that's a really tough student. The, the <laughs> many, many of our gifted students are, are not high performers, right? Right. Um, and so uh, where they may have aptitude to perform very well in theory, uh, the, the motivation to do so is, is low because of perhaps the way the content is delivered and the way that it comes to them. They, they might not be curious in certain areas or, or whatever it may be. Um, so, so the best that we can do by that student is, is describe any types of, of data points that we may have for them. For example, an SAT score or a PSAT score that may show that they have AP potential in certain areas, as an example, and just say, you know, hey, you may not know this about yourself. And, and for some students, that's very... Uh, encouraging and and they say oh I someone believes in me and and I can do this now because I, I or I'm going to prove that I can in fact do this um, and and candidly for some students they they don't really feel like leaning into the traditional educational experience to increase rigor is is worth it mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and and that's and that's really again when we talk about this open enrollment piece that that we've mentioned at the beginning of this show um, we're gonna we're gonna nudge a little bit, um, but ultimately allow that student to make the decision that, that they deem is best for them and, and make sure they know that, that we believe in potential, but mm-hmm. then let them work towards what, what they believe is in their best interest. I think that approach is, is remor- it can, well, it could be remarkable or it could be kind of defeating, you know, depending on which way the student goes with it. But I have been fortunate enough in my career that I have seen students who came into that class on that first day with no real expectation of doing well, no real expectation of getting anything out of the class, and then they thrive, and then they they they're remarkable at, you know, whatever the subject may be. In my case, history, but, um, you know, I'm reminded, you know, when you go back and you consider what keeps them from doing that, there is that idea that they just don't get anything out of high school. That it is kind of a fabricated notion of trying to educate somebody. But then you also have those people who there's a quote by Maya Angelou that said that uh, what keeps us down is not our fear of failure. It's our fear that we are beyond our expectations, that we are somehow more than what we've been in the past, that that's what actually keeps us from doing things. And so, you know, there's there's a there's a remarkable side to that when you get to see a student who properly nudged ends up just exploding with potential and impossibilities afterwards. I was enjoying Ross talking about his lack of motivation uh, as, a, as a high school student. I'm trying to, to picture that, you know, but I, I think I'm glad you brought that up, Ross, because we we tend to think about you know the the, the top ten percent type student when we're you know that's the context for talking about advanced placement. But, but the you know the, the students across the border are you know, in 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 these pathways and so forth. I mean, is there uh, a career pathway, you know, realistically in, in the program, does that happen? Is that an outcome, Wes? You know, for a lot of students, do they go directly to a to a job? Um, again, at, at the campus that I that I work currently, the the culture is is predominantly college bound, um, and so 
that is again the vast majority of our students however uh, there are pathways that, that we provide uh, through our district and, and many other districts and, and depending on your your makeup and your and your location and, and just how you know what that looks like in different areas you'll see the the amount of students going into vocations with with certifications that are employable straight from high school programs is, is pretty high and, and we offer a number of certifications to to create employability for our students right out of high school um, and, and many of those could be things like a, a pharmacy tech or something like that, that that again requires a certification or a patient care technician some uh, some of those type things where students could come straight out of high school working. Many of our students use that as a job to maintain in summers and during college, uh, but that could be a, a position to jump right out into. But but beyond that, those are, I'll call those uh, professional entities. We're talking about the medical industry, I just referenced there, but uh, things like HVAC and things like welding and, and construction and things like that. There's, there's other programs, auto tech, cosmetology. Uh, programs that are all available in which uh, a multitude of those as well provide certifications that are instantly employable to uh, what I would deem higher than than minimum wage type positions. And I would say maybe higher than their teachers are making in some cases. Sure. And, and the example of welding, for example, you're you're fairly likely to make more than than a first year teacher coming out of that into that field right out of high school. How much of a trend is this? Because we are starting to see school districts, even maybe college-oriented school districts, also introduce uh, vocational schools as well. It's kind of a reintroduction to something that kind of really fell away in the 80s and the 90s. Uh, do you think of this as a trend that you're going to see more of these kind of um, kind of accompanied schools with the kind of the traditional school model uh, in other places? Do you think that this is still fairly isolated or... How do you see this? And I might reflect that back to you a little bit in terms of a, a historical context and, and talking about where, you know, what the what the demand might be in a, in a society for certain types of, of employment. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I will answer the question, but I do think that's that's significant and what we prepare our students for in those type of fields is really guided by what is needed by our communities. Um, and so um, creating uh, logistics, for example, in our area is a big industry. And so creating students that are trained in those areas can be very helpful. Um, and so just acknowledging and recognizing what future trends look like for, for employment and, and needs to, to continue to have a functioning community at large mm -hmm. and, and working to ensure that we're putting individuals out into the marketplace, if you will. I, I know these are real human beings. I made them sound very uh, inhumane in the way I described that, but um, the but the idea of, of, of ensuring that we have the the work workplace filled with with individuals that are ready to, to perform the tasks that we all deem important or necessary is, is the key to this. Well, I, I'm intrigued um, not about not not only about what you just said, but also the fact that earlier on you said you listened to one of our episodes. Uh, did you listen to the one or multiple? <laughs> <laughs> have, you, have you listened to all? Uh, what did we have? Like 34 of them now, or something like that, uh, or, or just the one uh, about AP? So, so I had I've listened to all of your episodes in the first. 10 or 12 i fell off to be real honest and then i picked <laughs> back up and i'm and i'm i'm probably three quarters of your episodes i've heard at this point 
Okay, so do start to nod off when Ross is talking, kind of perk up when I'm not. Well, I, I typically lean in a little more when, when you're speaking, and uh, and I yeah. wait for, for Ross's singing one-liners. Yeah, he, he does that. Um, well, um, we, we mentioned, you know, in our tease for this episode that, you know, that, that you were going to set us right, and you just recently listened to what we did last week, so we're open to it. You know, what did we say that was, or, or Ross specifically, but I, I can take it too, um, that, that was just off, off base and acting, you know, kind of confirming that we didn't know what we were talking about. Well, I think I think one of the things that that you guys discussed at, at a pretty good length was reference to weighting of GPA and value of of learning versus you know how do you how do you quantify what that's worth in terms of putting it on a transcript and what's the value for for school and and so I won't I won't dismiss anything you guys said because I think you're both very knowledgeable about the topics you you speak to. Mm-hmm. Um, but but one of the things that I find that our that our students and families are are very enmeshed in their entire high school experience is trying to find the perfect college entrance resume, and um, unfortunately it's a it's a very uh, secretive society, if you will, of college admissions that that very rarely opens the door and just says this is exactly what we're going to do at each individual school. So if you want to be our best applicant, this is what you will look like, and so. Um, one of the, the issues that I find is that that many of our students feel like that they need to be a certain person or a certain representation of themselves and, and not really themselves at this point. They need to be somebody else that they believe is the best person to to present themselves to the college admissions process. And um, that's troubling to me in many ways. Um, I understand there has to be a metric. There has to be some standard by which we make decisions on who can get in and who can't get into when there's limited resources and limited spots to allow students in. Um, but but that is one of the the major challenges I see our students face when they when they talk about AP enrollment versus dual credit um, versus those types of things. And so um, navigating those waters both is are things that you guys discuss would be uh, would be there has to be some sort of, of benefit in terms of taking a risk for a class that will be more rigorous if your grade suffers. Um, naturally because it's a more challenging class than than another class that, that would be less rigorous um, and uh, enrolling in those classes needs to have something that that lets people understand that they are getting something for their risk and uh, otherwise i think we would find our students being risk averse at the point of of just taking the easiest classes possible to put the the best grades possible on the, on their scores and and their their report cards and transcripts um, I also find that that you know colleges and universities are looking big time into the level of rigor that our students are taking and across the board this is probably not universal but but in most cases i think our, our universities are, are counting ap to be slightly more rigorous than dual credit and certainly more universally accepted as it as it comes to leaving in our instance the state of texas you're going to see dual credit classes applying very um, equally across the state. However, when you leave, it's a, it's, it's really a case by case basis on that. It doesn't mean they won't count, but it's a case by case basis in which they'll, they'll evaluate whether they'll take a class from a local community college. Um, and so navigating those waters is very significant to students who are making those decisions oftentimes in their sophomore year, well before they have any clue of what their next step in life will take. And so, um, that's one of the many challenges I think we find in the counseling world is how to help best advise people. So in a, in a general sense, an AP course is more broadly recognized and, and accepted. Uh, 
but that AP exam at the end is really where that is where that college credit is going to result from. Whereas taking the dual credit class and earning a grade and, and whatever grade you're in that, that class goes on a college transcript is, is really nice and reassuring for some students to not wait until that date in May where they, they decide if they know U.S. history or whatever subject they may have. Well, thank you for that. And it makes us feel we're kind of on track, but you said, you know, one thing that, that might be a, a uh, another conversation you know and we'd like to at some point get you back on here because the idea of risk uh, just, you know that to me that that's you know we're, we're kind of moving in that direction with our conversation we want risk and we want students to to feel like you know not just uh learning for the sake of learning but also can they push themselves out of their comfort zone and so we'd we'd, we'd love to have you back and this is a i hope this is one of one of many but we're, we're really glad to have you on i appreciate it yeah, and so the and and we can also you know talk about you know certainly from your point of view you're able to talk about this I think but also not just the risk adverse with regards to academics but just in general how do we you know how do we try to make sure that students don't develop that um, th that um, that kind of blockage from doing something a little bit out of their comfort zone um, there's a professor Jonathan Haidt that talked about the idea that um, that something is anti-fragile, the, the notion that the more willing you are to take um, uh, reasonable risk, then the more you become capable of dealing with those and you become a stronger person, not just in regards to academics, but in your personal life as well. Sure, so, I agree with that for sure. I think if, if, we, if we allow for risk to, to not be completely life-altering uh, in creating that environment in our learning settings where we're taking risks is, uh, is in fact often rewarded in many ways, um, then, then I think we, we create an atmosphere where that, that's going to happen more often. And, and I can't agree more with both of what you guys are saying in which that uh, taking risks is, is really critical to experiencing learning in, in heightened ways. Well, this is, Steve, is pretty exciting, and it's also the possibility of having Wes on again. So um, uh, with that, uh, another Saturday, another podcast, and uh, another learning experience for Steve and I uh, to be able to have you on and hear your thoughts about these sorts of things. And so with that, Herr Dr. Bourgeois, uh, Mr. Upton, we'll bid you an adieu. Thank you again, Wes. Enjoyed it. Thank you, gentlemen.